Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really, really glad you have joined us. By now, you've no doubt heard the growing demands by so many Americans to defund the police, or at least radically reform and reallocate the distribution of dollars for public services in cities throughout the country. And while significantly restructuring the police is a big first step, the police are just one facet of a much larger criminal justice system that is in dire need of real change. Heather Ann Thompson is a professor of history at the University of Michigan and the Pulitzer Prize winning author of the book Blood in the Water, which was about the Attica prison uprising. Thompson's work asks us all to reconsider the purpose and the impact of incarceration. And she ties many of the problems of carceral policy to structural racism and other forms of inequality. She is a critical voice to hear from now, and I'm really glad to have her with us on Detroit Today. Heather, welcome back to the show. So great to be here, Stephen. Yes. So let's start with this. Uh, Your feelings and reactions to this moment of protest and to the growing falls calls to defund the police. Well, it's a it's a remarkable moment, and it is really the moment I think that shows how much dissatisfaction, how much uh, real trauma there has been in communities across this nation for a very long time. You don't see this many people coming out in the streets and reacting with this level of despair uh, without this being a long-brewing problem. And I'm sort of both moved to see how many people are in the streets also uh, worried on their behalf because we are, you know, so often when we see this kind of uh, collective uh, uh, speaking out, we also see a really draconian response to it. And, And I'm sort of hopeful, but but also a, a bit worried. Yeah. So as I said in the open, a lot of what people are talking about right now is focused on the police because that's kind of the flashpoint that, that started all this, the, the killing of George Floyd by a police officer in Minneapolis. Your work is, takes a kind of broader view, though, of the, of the criminal justice system and gets into what happens after people are interacting with police and are part of the carceral state. I I wonder if you can sort of draw some connections between policing and the kinds of issues that you raise in Blood in the Water and in your other work. Well, it's absolutely appropriate that there is so much attention right now on policing. And, And one of the ironies is that for all of the uh, discussion about criminal justice reform that led up to this, it was really kind of remarkable how little attention had been put on policing. But of course, that is the that is the gateway. That is the front end to the reason we have more people in prison than any other country on the globe uh, and why we have uh, so many families permanently uh, scarred and damaged from uh, this propensity always to treat uh, to treat uh, anything with the criminal justice system, any kind of social harm, but also any kind of social trauma with the criminal justice system. And policing is the front end of that. Um, the level of arrests that go on every single day and the preponderance of those being kind of misdemeanor arrests 
incidentally, that increase contact between the police and the community, which then increases uh, all of these incidents of violence and fatal uh, interactions. And so it's, it's appropriate we look at the police, but it's also appropriate that we understand that it's the very act of policing, it's the very act of criminalizing certain communities over others that has led us to this situation where not only do we have the world's largest uh, prison population, but why that prison population is so racially disparate, why there is so many more uh, black and brown faces behind bars. Um, And this all roots in policing. Yeah. Uh, In your in your book about Attica, there is a lot of uh, exposition about history and the role that it plays in who is in prison and why, and in the idea of prison itself, that it doesn't just sort of plop down as its own way of dealing with crime or criminals, uh, but that it also ties to really historically oppressive Practices. I wonder if you can talk just a little about the context in which all of these things happened. They didn't just develop. Uh, there was an intentionality and a real momentum from our history behind all of that. Well, that's right. And and uh, th- there's some good news in that, which is that the, the, the criminal justice system we have was a policy choice not a crime imperative, mm-hmm. which means that we can unchoose it. So there's some good news in that, but the story itself is really uh, quite alarming, which is to say that we had uh, a long history in this country. I mean, really baked into the DNA of this country is racial injustice at the criminal justice level. That is to say, only uh, the people under most scrutiny are black and brown citizens in this country. So that part has always been the case. But what was really remarkable, particularly in the 1960s, was that when the civil rights movement comes north, that is to say, when it's no longer in Selma or in Birmingham, when it comes to cities like Detroit and Philadelphia and Rochester, the response on the part of policymakers was very similar to what it had been in southern small towns, which is to say this is not legitimate protest. This is thuggery. This is criminality. And we're going to respond to it by reinvesting in our police, and not just reinvesting, but giving untold dollars to the police to bring in a higher militarized force to respond to social unrest with, um, you know, great more flak jackets and tanks and all of those things. And the upshot of all of that was a was an increase in the police, which in turn then leads to this increase in policing. But the trauma of it, the tragedy of it, is that the reason people were in the police was, or I'm sorry, in the streets in the first place was because of these deep racial divides, the fact that um, uh, equal opportunity was not a reality, the fact that the white schools were so much better than the black schools in terms of funding and in terms of you know, resources and the health differentials, health care outcome differentials, everything was, was, uh, you know, was unjust. Mm-hmm. And so that's why people are protesting, and the response to it was policing and, and ultimately uh, the highest prison rates in the nation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Heather Ann Thompson, a professor of history at the University of Michigan and author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Blood in the Water, which was about the Attica prison uprising. We're talking about the context of the conversation that we are having nationally now 
about policing and reimagining policing. Some people say we ought to defund the police or dismantle the police force as we know it and reconstitute it uh, in a really different way with its focus being on really different things. Uh, we're talking about how that connects to the larger criminal justice system and the great needs there for reform. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what you think about this idea of defunding the police and whether you see a connection between reforming the police and reforming our prisons or other parts of the criminal justice system. We'd especially love to hear from you if you're somebody who was incarcerated. What were the conditions like? Uh, in what way could the system have been better and more constructively served your time uh, spent uh, in a correctional facility? What things could be really different in our criminal justice system uh, if we remade it? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put uh, uh, comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Heather, before we go to the phones or to listeners on, on social media, um, I want to talk about the reaction to what happened at Attica after the uprising and how that connects to what we see of modern policing today. That is a really critical part of the story that you tell uh, in your book. And, and each time I see uh, somebody killed by the police, a, a young black man or a woman uh, killed by the police, I'm, I'm reminded of that connection that you draw and the reaction that, uh, that you detailed in the book. Well, that's right. Um, one of the things that happens at Attica for listeners who aren't familiar with the story is that there was a pretty dramatic uh, protest for better conditions on the inside of that really quite notorious maximum security facility. And the reaction to it on the part of state officials ultimately was to send in extremely armed uh, state troopers who for 15 minutes did nothing but shoot. And the, uh, the upshot of that event was not just that both guards and prisoners were shot to death, but a total of 128 people were shot, some of them six, seven bullets. And that response to uprising was not only seen as legitimate, but actually it was then uh, spun in such a way that it was uh, not, you know, that no police officer was ever held accountable. Uh, in fact, only the prisoners were uh, were uh, um, indicted for having rebelled, but not a single uh, uh, trooper for having shot them. And that really is the way, right, in this country. And so, yes, when we see it today, when we see police shootings today without any responsibility taken, we realize that this is a long history of this. And one of the reasons it's able to happen is because of the way we tell the story, the way we explain what just happened, whether it was legitimate or not. And we're in a different day. People do not uh, see automatically that that would be legitimate. And all of these bodies in the street these days, uh, both black and white, are, are suggesting that, no, it is not legitimate to use lethal force on someone uh, simply for, uh, for standing up. Mm -hmm. uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Mark in Detroit. Mark, welcome to the show. How are you, how are you doing? Thank you for having me. Sure. Um, 
you know, I just did 14 years flat, and I've been out for 104 days. And I would just like to uh, interject into the conversation that there is absolutely, and when I say absolutely, I mean absolutely, nothing in the prison system that prepares an individual for release. So I don't want to get into the conversation of the legalities of innocence and guilt and all that, because that's a whole other segment. Mm -hmm. But um, the bottom line is they need to... They need to incorporate something that prepares an individual for getting out. When I came home, I had nowhere to go. I'm 61 years old. And um, I was accused of conspiracy to commit an armed robbery. And I took it to trial, and they offered me two years, but I wouldn't take it. And because I fought the case, I was penalized. Uh, people in my cell block are in there for shooting people. There was a couple guys had uh, second-degree murders. They had eight-year uh, uh, sentences. And yet I get 14 years, four months for conspiracy to commit unarmed robbery because somebody said I told them to do it. Now, I was there. I was, you know, I was with the people, obviously the wrong place at the wrong time, but I didn't tell nobody to do anything. And, uh, you know, I'm not no white sheep here. You know, I've been in trouble before. You know, I grew up uh, in Highland Park, Michigan with uh, no family. And um, the bottom line is... Um, uh, they just need some type of preparement for a guy when he gets home because wow. I've been living in a motel, 1148 bucks a month wow. Wow. is what I pay, and I can't get no place to rent. They see your record. They know you're on parole. Uh, you know, there's places to rent that are nice for seven, 800 a month, but they won't rent them to me. And so here I am busting my butt every day trying to figure out how to pay this rent to stay off the street. I consider myself lucky that, you know, I have the uh, academics to at least, you know, pay the rent. Yeah. But my, my, my point is, is there's no, there's nothing. They don't teach you anything in there. They, they say they have these programs, you know, like, um, you know, a thinking for a change. And stuff like that is, is important for people that, you know, have uh, issues, uh, uh, you know, focusing and, uh uh, thinking correctly because people, you know, some people assume a whole lot of things that are incorrect. Yeah. And uh, I just wish that the Michigan Department of Corrections and other correctional facilities in whole created a way to reintegrate people back into society to give them a chance to be productive members of yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. guys come out here and, you know, a lot of them just fall right back into their old habits and uh, well, they and end up back in yeah. prison. Now, Mark, I, I really appreciate your call and your sharing <clears throat> your story. Uh, and, of course, we, we hope that things do turn around for you and that you find a place to be able to live um, and that uh, you're able to, to put your life back together after such a long time. Uh, in prison and and for and for something that uh, again as you point out is is not as egregious as the time that you spent would would suggest uh, Heather Thompson there's a lot going on in Mark's story there but all of it I think fits into this narrative of the way in which we have constructed the the justice system uh, in this country and the the heavy heavy penalties that we levy against people for pretty minor stuff and that uh, it, it changes their lives forever. Well, that's absolutely right. And, and everything that Mark is calling attention to 
really underscores how deeply, deeply broken the system is. I mean, it's so broken that nobody that has any means or any access would ever put their children through the system if they fell afoul of the law. They would do everything in their power to make sure that their child had a different way of taking responsibility. And that is a message to us. Um, and I'd love just for a moment to, for us to think about what Mark said in relation to these broader calls to defund the police. People get alarmed by that language. They think, my God, you know, we'll have complete chaos running around if there are no police on the street. Well, of course, it's the fact that so many resources go toward police and to, toward prison. We have such a broken system. We don't have that money on the front end for better schools in places like Highland Park, where Mark grew up. We don't have that money to uh, to imagine different ways for uh, responsibility to be taken or for people to get housing when they have served time. So this whole discussion is actually so timely because it's the first time, it seems to me, that in our criminal justice reform discussions, we're seeing the big picture, you know, the whole I instantly, Stephen, got back from a trip where I got the opportunity to see how they do this in Norway and also in Finland. And what was so remarkable in Finland was that they had an extremely draconian criminal justice system, the highest prison rates in all of the Nordic countries. But when they decided to effectively defund the police and to rethink their prison system, what that meant was dramatic. I mean, it literally meant that all of a sudden there was more money for social workers and for education and other things. And what a surprise. Their prison rates dropped. Their, uh, you know, their, their uh, dramatic co- uh, conflicts between police and citizens redropped. So it's not like we have to reinvent the wheel here. We have other models, and we can imagine this differently. Mm, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Heather Ann Thompson, and we are going to continue to hear from you, Peter in Detroit, Jim in Southfield. We'll also get to some of our social media comments, and if you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more of Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. I'm talking with Heather Ann Thompson. She's a professor of history at the University of Michigan and author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Blood in the Water, which was about the Annika prison uprising. We're talking about the connection between the ideas that are being forwarded right now to reform the police, radical ideas that all of a sudden are in the mainstream, and the idea, the conversation that we need to be having about reforming the larger criminal justice system, reforming prisons, reforming how people get into prison, how long people are sent to prison. Uh, We want to hear from you as well. Uh, What do you make of this moment where we're talking about things like defunding the police? And do you see a connection between that and our prisons and the rest of the criminal justice system? We also want to hear from you if you have been incarcerated. Uh, Tell us 
what the conditions were like. Tell us what the experience was like. And tell us if you have ideas about ways the system could have been better and that you could have more constructively served your time uh, spent in a correctional facility. Uh, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Let's go to Peter in Detroit. Peter, welcome to the show. Stephen, thanks for uh, doing this topic, and Heather, thanks for all the work that you and folks like Angela Davis and others have been doing for decades on this question. I'm wondering now that so many of us are in the streets, if you could point us in the direction of going deeper in terms of either specific uh, organizations or specific books or where we would research in terms of laying the groundwork for taking on the enormous amounts of money that go to policing and prisons and the economy of all that. Mm. Uh, Peter, great question. It's one of the questions that I think I wake up each morning uh, in the front of my mind, which is uh, protests are, are great ways to bring attention to an issue, but we actually need policymaking and real change on the back end. And it's hard to know where that starts and where it can be effective. Uh, Heather, what would you what would you say to Peter? Well, thank you for calling in, Peter. I, I think that it's that is the million dollar question. It, it is how do we link up this kind of uh, this need for what we have to change with the desire and and make it something that actually sticks. And I want to just for a moment say let's don't underestimate the power of the actual protest to move the needle. Um, you know, if we think back in American history. It is really remarkable how the most dramatic change that has ever happened has always begun this way. Mm -hmm. Uh, No politician has ever sat in their office and just said, you know what, I think we're going to end slavery or, you know what, I think that women should have the right to vote. Uh, It's always come first uh, by people demanding the change and making clear that there will not be any full peace unless there is full justice, full change. So that's a really important place to start. It's not just kind of a beginning. It's, mm. it's, a, it's really enduring, and we need to remember that uh, when people come to the streets uh, after a police killing. And it, it really does change policy because it puts departments on notice uh, with their own officers and, and it puts the mayor's office on notice that this will not be tolerated anymore. But then what? You know, then how do we do it? And the funny thing is, we actually have all kinds of very logical ways to do it. Um, everything from when we are passing school millages and not defunding our police, I mean, I'm sorry, not defunding our schools, but actually funding them again, uh, who we vote for, what they represent, whether they're representing austerity and taking money away from social services and only towards prisons or the other way around. We have to pay attention. And I think finally, we have to uh, look around the world at other places that simply don't do it this way and forget even the Nordic countries, which are such a powerful model. We can just look north to our neighbor in Canada. They have dramatically lower incarceration rates than we do. It is not perfect. It is still racialized. But there are plenty of places we can look. And if our legislators are serious, they need to start doing some, uh, you know, some trips. They need to start actually investigating how to do this. But how about this? How about we just go back to even the way we were in 1970 as a start? If we did that, 
we would have to let out more than a million people from our prisons. Mm. We would have to imagine far more funding for our uh, food stamp program, for our housing assistance program, and for our education system. So I think we've got models. We've got the will now. And now the question is to get some heads together to just simply put things back where they were. And then how about just go a step further and put these things where they could be? Yeah. Uh, When you talk about those kind of things, I mean, uh, people often come back with the idea that, well, those things cost money and we don't have money and people want low taxes and things like that. But when you think about the money that we spend already, on criminal justice uh, and the outcomes that we get for that money and how inadequate they are and how absolutely devastating they are for for certain parts of the population, African-Americans, uh, uh, other black and brown people, um, you know, that's an easy that's an easy place to start. We are spending uh, an exorbitant amount of money on all of this and what we're getting for it doesn't make us safer. Uh, and it's ruining uh, entire communities in in ways that that uh, that that don't have to happen. Well, that's right. That's why the term defund the police, which is akin to the term justice reinvestment, it's not it's not as radical as it may sound. It's actually about taking dollars that we already have and reallocating them to places that every single study shows us would be more effectively spent. Um, I've used this example before, but you know, people are so loath to fund school systems if they don't have a perfect graduation rate, but we are still willing to fund prisons that are failing at just dramatic, dramatic levels. It doesn't make sense. We do have other models. And the one last example I'll give of this is where I began, which is to say that if we doubt that we could have a world where we handled things differently. We need we need simply to look at communities that have any kind of social standing and wealth and opportunity. And we know that the minute something goes wrong in that community, the absolute last person that they want to call is the police. Mm-hmm. And the last place they want their people to go is prison. And that's because they know it makes things worse. Mm-hmm. So we just have to tell the truth about it. And then the justice reinvestment only makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Jim in Southfield. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Stephen. Uh, I'll try to be brief. Obviously, this is a monster large subject. Uh, you know, in response to the, the or, or in comment on the last conversation, to my mind, one thing to recall, to compare the Tea Party with the Occupy movement. I know this uh, this movement is, you know, much larger than uh, the, you know, the Occupy movement, but compare Tea Party to the success of the first Black Lives Matter movement. What was the difference? Political got involved in political organization. Go to MAD. Go to Right to Life. That is the key. Uh, in my mind, perhaps I'm, a, you know, from my own point of view, hmm. whatever, too cornered, but political action, there must be, otherwise these protests will be historical footnotes once again. Hmm. On my original reason for calling, and I'll just try to be brief on that, you know, I was... Uh, in practicing law in the 80s when the war on crime and tough on crime and Brooks Patterson and all that crew uh, got involved. And then the justice system, instead of focusing on the person, the criminal, the victim, you know, the criminal, the person committed committed crime, so they're criminal, instead of figuring out what to do, they looked at the victim. And for victims' rights, it seemed to be there's never, never enough because 
nobody could make their life right again. These excessively long sentences, uh, you know, are hugely expensive. I would think that conser- uh, a person from a, cons- pardon me, fiscal conservative bent mm. would say, we are wasting money. If a guy could safely return to society after eight years, like one of the prior callers said, successfully return, become, quote, a taxpayer, a contributing member, instead of being dependent on the state, costing all this money to keep them incarcerated. Uh, Finally, I would just say we could probably ultimately cut our prison population in half and use that same money to improve the community and, once again, not just cut you know, pay all this money, but look at the revenue of income of producing productive people again. Sure. I mean, we just have a horribly, horribly stupid system. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Jim, no, I, I really appreciate the call and uh, and all the thoughts there. I mean, I think it, it's really reflective of, of all of the problems that, uh, that we're talking about here and, and trying to figure out whether there is a better way uh, to do all of this. Thanks again, Jim, for the call and the comments. Let's go to Barbara in Detroit. Barbara, welcome to the show. Are you there, Barbara? Steven. Oh, hi. 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 Um, I want to piggyback off of the last caller, um, the gentleman who just spoke as it relates to victims. Mm-hmm. Um, and my question is, why is the victim's voice minimized when it relates to having these discussions as it relates to criminal justice reform. Mm. Um, that question is really broad. It's really big. Um, whether it's regarding nonviolent crimes to serious, violent, and lethal crimes, the victim is normally out of the process as it relates to these conversations um, and discussions. And I also understand that it all depends on um, what the crime is, but the victim's voice is never elevated to be a part of these conversations and decisions as it relates to criminal justice reform overall. Yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting point, Barbara. I'm glad you called uh, and injected that into the, into the conversation here. You know, uh, Heather, I, I wonder if, if we reformed the criminal justice system so that it did better by the the, the population that is, uh, you know, penalized and devastated by by over incarceration, could we also, or would it by by extension, do better by victims who are, are just as uh, as left out as, as Barbara says of, of the idea of of justice? I mean, there are lots of calls for things like restorative justice, uh, for instance, as a way of, uh, of, of dealing with these things, would that do better by, by people who are crime victims? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I so appreciate the last two calls to bring this up because we have this idea somehow that if we don't have a draconian, extremely punitive criminal justice system, that somehow uh, people who commit harm will be let off the hook, which will further victimize the people who they have harmed. And in fact, we know differently. We know that systems that actually are more just, uh, people who have been harmed by someone feel that they have had much more justice done. And the core of that is what you mentioned. It is a restorative justice model as opposed to a punitive justice model. And that doesn't mean that people don't take responsibility. The, The mythology 
is that somehow wrongdoers will get off scot-free in a different system than we have. And yet no one is suggesting that. No one has ever suggested that. No country that has a more humane justice system, in fact, does that. So it's really a question of imagining if we had resources for the front end. The front end meaning that even everyone who's on the inside is themselves a victim. I don't say that flippantly. I mean that, you know, the majority of women who are in prison right now have been victims of domestic or sexual assault. You know, all people in there have been victims of an incredibly brutal economic system. So how do we think about victimhood? Well, it's both the people who've been directly harmed in a particular assault or in a moment in time, but it's also the people that ended up in prison because their trauma and their victimization was never, ever addressed or handled. So imagine a system where we had resources to, in fact, deal with harm in all of its many forms. Then we're really talking about public safety, and we really are talking about justice, and victims get the better end of the stick in that kind of a system. Okay. Heather Ann Thompson, it is always really great to talk with you, but uh, right now I feel like your voice is a real light in the darkness. So thank you very much for being thank here you with so us much, on Stephen. today. Yes, we'll talk again with you soon. All right, up next, we're going to take a look at how courts around the state are planning to reopen. Michigan Supreme Court Chief Justice Bridget McCormick joins us next. Stay with us on Detroit Today.